0: Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon for Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. One of the reasons why it's a push for us to not give the enemy your seat at the table is because if you invite him to the table, he'll eat your lunch. He's just rude like that god knows this world can be a scary place that's why psalm 23 is so consistently reassuring will i have everything i need well like a shepherd god will provide that will there ever be peace in my life peace in my heart again so that i can just rest and like sandy talked about in her communion meditation can i wake up restored again instead of filled with dread well he knows what i need most And he leads me toward that. But I'm just so worn out and exhausted. Well, if I trust him to guide me, then he'll strengthen me and I'll be renewed and refreshed again. In spite of the dark valleys we walk through, we don't have to panic. And when I feel insecure and threatened about the future or maybe even the current present, if I put my trust in him, that gets put in perspective. I may end up with some bumps and scrapes along the way, I may even be wounded, but he knows how to anoint us in a way that brings us healing again. But what if, despite your best intentions, you realize that you've been deceived, you've taken the bait, like somebody said a few weeks ago, and you've been deceived into giving Satan your seat at the table? Well, God knows we need to get our head on straight. I didn't happen to hear the post-game interview with our 19-year-old rookie quarterback at Ohio State yesterday, but in his first post-game interview, for the first time he'd played in two years, uh, C.J. Stroud summarized the game this way. Well, in the first half, my mind wasn't right. I didn't get to watch the game yesterday, but I heard in the post-game interviews uh, apparently now we need to get our defensive coaches mind right but the quarterback talked about that first game it was a nasty game they played in the rain and the opponents all trying to intimidate you and confuse you they're, they're chasing after you they want to take you down you're trying to make snap decisions in two or three seconds and you've got the pressure of delivering perfectly every single time and and on top of that everyone's watching everything you do and they're trying to take you down that's the kind of stuff that gets in your head and you don't have to be in a stadium filled with a hundred thousand people if you're going through grief it may feel like everyone's watching to see how you're doing and they're being super analytical of everything that they see or hear. And you feel that pressure to be perfect in your grief recovery, whatever that looks like. And you get worried about, well, what if I'm, 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 I'm taking you know, one step forward but two steps back, and will I ever get past this? Here's how Paul described what it's like in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 and 4. He says, even though we walk in the world, we do not fight in the same way that people of this world do. Our weapons are different than theirs. Our weapons are empowered by God. We destroy every proud idea that argues against the knowledge of God, and we capture every thought Just like a prisoner of war and make it bow in obedience to Christ. Now, whether you're talking about capturing your thoughts as you try to recover from grief. Or whether it's realizing I can't take any more news because it's killing me. Like a prisoner of war. Capture every thought and realize when those thoughts are taking you against the knowledge of God. Don't give the enemy your seat at the table, because if you do, you'll find that it's easy for your life to spiral out of control. Here's a little bit about how it works. We find ourselves struggling to do the right thing, and when we do, what happens? Because we're always distracted or always tempted or always... Frustrated about what the right thing is to do, like, I know I need to turn it off and walk away, or I know I shouldn't have snapped like that. James gives you this information. In verse 13, he says, when a person is tempted, they shouldn't say, God's tempting me. If I could twist that or paraphrase it just a little bit, when you find yourselves tempted, you shouldn't blame God. It's not his fault. And he reminds us that God can't be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone. And Satan uses those thoughts and those desires against us as he describes in the next verse in James 1:14, by saying this, each person is tempted by their own evil desire. It's not God's evil. That's my own desire that leads me on and drags me away. It's kind of like a recent sermon series, Don't Take the Bait, and how it was described almost like a fishing lure that entices us. It's something shiny. It's something feathery. It's something that looks like it's something else, like a a moth or a butterfly on the top of the waterline. And then it turns out to be something entirely different. That's not unlike the way temptation works. It promises us something good. It promises us solution. It promises relief. It promises a way out. It promises justice and even comfort. It even has the ability to promise us strength. And yet, once we bite, we find ourselves constantly chasing and spiraling out of control because Satan continues to appeal to our basic human needs. We all feel the same need to be accepted, to have a sense of value and worth, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of purpose and meaning. And yes, will we ever be happy again? And yet Satan continues to dangle a lure in front of us, offering us one lie after another about what's going to give us that feeling. And if that's what we get stuck on, life begins to spiral out of control because Satan will often use other people to encourage our bad choices. Why? You've heard the phrase, misery loves company. And miserable people typically want those around them to fail as well because that way they don't feel so bad about their own failure. But if you succeed, now you've embarrassed me. If you succeed, now you've made me feel worse about myself and my dumb choices. You see, the truth is, we may need to change our friends. We may need to change the people that we hang around with. And dare I say, we may need to change the TV channel. (coughs) Or the radio channel. Especially if they're always rolling out the red carpet to welcome us to do more dumb stuff don't give the enemy your seat at the table instead watch what you dwell on let me be clear about this being tempted is not sin it happened to Jesus right Right after his own baptism, the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness where he was tempted for the next 40 days, a prolonged period of temptation. Do you have those moments in your life when you just think, enough, get off of me? 40 days, I mean four days of temptation would be plenty, right? And yet Jesus has to deal with this prolonged period of temptation in his life that probably, like for us, seemed like it was never going to stop. But Jesus warned us against thinking that we're good just because we never act on those things that we're thinking about. For example, I'll just refer to this in passing. It's in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. He says, Listen, don't excuse your lingering anger at someone just because you never killed him. Or a couple of verses later in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, Don't excuse your lingering lust. Just because you never actually slept with them. Here's the truth of the matter. The longer you dwell on something, the more it changes you. Now that can be good news, but it can also be bad news. Here's, here's an idea of how you stop the death spiral. It's found in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. He says it this way, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely or commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. Don't miss that last part. You may not be able to control those passing thoughts that go through your mind that honestly kind of surprise you at times and think, what in the world, where did that come from? You may not be able to control that any more than you can control the bird that flies over your head. (laughs) Or what can happen when the bird flies over your head and you're driving a convertible? It always cracks me up when Claudia ducks, yeah. like that's going to make a difference. <laughs> I can't control the random things that cross into my head, but I can control that, that will make my life spiral out of control if I start to obsess about that. But I can control whether I obsess about it, right? I can control whether I dwell on that. I can control whether or not I say enough and force myself to think about, to dwell on something else. Because without a deliberate conscious effort, we will focus and obsess on sin's impact in our life. It's kind of like the person that struggles with anorexia or bulimia or some other eating disorder. When they look at themselves in the mirror, they see somebody who needs to lose just five more pounds and then they'll be right. But when everybody else looks at them, they see somebody that's just skin stretched over bones and they're worried about their health. It's what we obsess about, right? Even though it promised us pleasure and peace, we end up broken, disappointed, separated, and even ashamed. Because as soon as you take the bait, Satan shifts from being an enticer to an accuser, loser, failure. Your mother-in-law was right. Like we ever want to hear that, right? Or you're just like your dad. Those are fun words. Or your mother. And we become so overwhelmed by hopelessness that we begin to wonder why bother. Now, I spent, uh, I spent way too much time looking for a video of this and then just chose to, to skip it. So relax, Jeremy, there's no video to click on here. I wanted to show a video of what's called, what's called a, 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 a death spin, a death spiral by a crocodile or an alligator. Even I couldn't bring myself to show that because it was just too gruesome. The the number one hit that came up was, look at this zebra losing its face after the alligator tries to take it into a death death spiral. Yeah, you're not seeing that. But that's that's how the gator kills its prey. It grabs a hold of it, it takes it under, and it just begins to spin until it drowns or is torn apart. And the same thing happens when we become so obsessed that we don't allow ourselves to think of anything else, and that death spiral of guilt just takes us under and keeps spinning. Our enemy Satan condemns us because he wants to destroy us, but God our Father convicts us because He loves us and wants to restore our relationship. And there's a huge difference between the two, but we don't always recognize that difference. Condemnation comes from guilt, but conviction from God comes from His grace. Condemnation leads us to try to hide and conceal our sin. Conviction leads us to openly confess it and be done with it, to stop hiding from it. Condemnation, condemnation creates just remorseful feelings. You probably heard your parents say, Are you sorry or are you just sorry you got caught? Ah, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, condemnation just creates remorseful feelings. But conviction creates repentance and a changed direction. Condemnation convinces you, you've got to hide this. And conviction convinces you to come clean with complete honesty and transparency. Because you just can't be a fraud anymore. We can dwell on the danger of that that death spin. Or we can dwell instead on the deliverance that God offers us in having a seat at his table. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, it says, the only temptation that you have is the same temptation that all people have. You can trust God. Now, I'm telling you, those two phrases just don't seem... In the Bible that I write, in my mind, those two phrases aren't in the same sentence. In the Bible that I write, in my heart, I want it to say, yeah, you're tempted, But God's going to take that temptation away, and you're not ever going to be tempted again. That's how I used to pray when I was a teenager. But he says, in the middle of the temptation, similar to what everybody else endures, you can trust God. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your power to resist. No, God, you wrote that wrong, I want to say to him. I want it to say, you won't allow me to be tempted beyond your ability to remove it. But it doesn't say that. He says, he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond your power to resist. But when you are tempted, now the good stuff, right? Here's where God says he's going to take it away. Keep reading when you are tempted he will also provide a way out yes wait what's the rest of the verse say so that you can endure it no no god you got that wrong you added too much i want the period to be he will provide a way out period i want it to be on god to deal with my temptation. But by inspiration, Paul says, it doesn't work that way. You will be able to endure whatever it is that you're being tempted with because of the involvement of God. You see, temptation can feel a lot like quicksand. Before you know it, you're stuck and you're going down and there's nothing you can grab a hold of to pull yourself up out of it. You're trapped, you're alone, you begin to panic, you've heard that struggling makes you go faster and you don't want that so you just try to be still but you're still going down and everything in you says swim out of it, run out of it, do something, climb out of it, but you can't. And based on what I've read, uh, Here's an interesting thing about quicksand. There's a, not that I am at all a physics major, but there's a phenomenon in physics apparently that's called force chain. Like forget your force chain, throw me a chain so I can get out of it, right? But in, a force chain in physics simply means you're not going to go all the way under. People seldom die in quicksand from suffocation. Instead, they die in quicksand because of exhaustion and exposure. They wear themselves out trying to escape. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds an awfully lot like spiritual exhaustion to me when you just can't fight anymore and you feel like giving up. That's a lot how temptation works. But that's also why we can't give the enemy our seat at the table just because we're stuck in quicksand. We belong there. We're there by Christ's deliverance. It's because of Christ that we have a seat at the table. Now, in the meantime, kind of like being... Quarterback with 100,000 people and the game's not going well, even though you've got over 600 yards of rushing. All you can hear are the boos from people who've had too much booze. We, the, the chants in the stands tell us Get him out of there. He doesn't belong. He's not good enough. Put somebody else in his place. And yet, we have a seat at the table because God has prepared that seat for us. We belong not because of our skill, but because of Christ's invitation and deliverance. God says, when you're tempted, trust me. Here's why he says that. In Ephesians chapter 2, let me read some things to you. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in this unseen world. He's the spirit who's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. That doesn't sound like somebody who's just being tempted. That sounds to me like somebody who's stubborn, who knows better and just makes a choice. And then he says, yeah, all of us used to live that way. Because we followed that passionate desire and the inclination of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. And in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, he says, But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead. Along with Christ. And He seated us with Him at that heavenly banquet table in the heavenly realms because we were united with Christ. Hmm. I remember being frustrated about how much playing time I wasn't getting. And how much more playing time others were getting. Because the coach knew their dad. It's all about who you know, right? Not just in sports, but in other aspects of life too. And here he says, who do you know? You're not at the table because of what you are owed. You're at the table because you're one with Christ. So, verse 7, God can point to us in all future ages as an example of His incredible wealth of grace and His kindness toward us as shown in all that He's done for us who are united with Christ. Verse 8, for by Christ you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of our work so that Anyone would boast, for were his workmanship workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we may be guilty, but it's by the grace of God that we have a seat with Christ. We may not deserve to be there. There may be others who are more deserving than us. But no one deserves to be there except that they're invited by Christ. Life can spiral out of control when you start to listen to the booze. Listen to the truth according to God. In Romans 6, he says, So do you think that we should should continue sinning so that God may give us more and more of his grace? Of course not. Our old sinful life has ended. It's dead. So how can we continue living in sin? Did you forget that all of us were united with Christ when we were baptized? It was in our baptism that we shared in His death. So when we were baptized, we were buried with Christ and took part in His death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Father, so we now live a new life. When people go down into the steps of of our baptistry, it ironically looks like a coffin because, well, it kind of spiritually is. That's what happens when you're dead. You go into a coffin. But the good news is you don't stay in the coffin because spiritually you don't stay dead in your sin. We're washed from our sins and we come up out of the water. And just like we come up out of the water, he says we come up to live a new life. If we've been buried, if we've been united with him in death like this, we'll certainly also be united with him like this in his resurrection. Verse 6 we know that our old life was crucified with him, dead and buried. This happens so that our sinful self would have no power over us. Think temptation. Think what you obsess about. Think what you dwell on. And he says, that has no more power over us. We're no longer slaves to it. Because anyone who's died has been set free from sin's control. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him, he says. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death has no power over him now because when Christ died, he died to defeat the power of sin. He died to sin once for all. The new life that he lives is lived for God. And then he says in verse 11, in that same way, count yourselves dead to the power of sin, but alive to God. The God that gives you the ability to endure when you're tempted. The God that gives you life, gives you life, and in that new life gives you the ability to stop dwelling on the wrong things and start dwelling on the right things. You must not be ruled by your evil desires. Don't use your body to do evil, but offer yourselves to God as people who've died and now live. Offer yourselves to God to be used for doing good. In verse 14, he summarizes it here in Romans 6 by saying this. Sin will no longer be your master. You now live under God's grace. That's why Paul tells the Christians in a place called Galatia. In Galatians 2 verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And now I live my life by putting my trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why I have a place at the table. And shortly after that, he would remind him in verse 26 and 27, You're all children of God through your faith in Christ Jesus. For all who have been united with Christ in baptism have clothed themselves with Christ. I was putting on a pair of socks, not this morning. I have socks on today, but I know that was a concern for you. But I was putting on a pair of socks one time, I pulled them up, you know, and man, all of a sudden, my foot just went right on through the end of the toe of the sock. I was running late, and I'm thinking, it's not like I'm just going to wear socks and and, and sandals here. Nobody will know, I'll just, and then, you know, so you try to put your shoe on, you try to get away with it, and the whole day, all you can feel is your toes and the end of the shoe. The sock just keeps crawling up, you know. But the thing is he says clothe yourself with christ cover yourself with christ it's like adam and eve covered themselves with leaves he says i got something better than that cover yourself with christ don't give your your enemy your seat at the table You don't have to do what Satan says. Get out of that chair. You don't belong here. I belong there. I'm more worthy than you. you." That's why in Romans 13, verse 11 through 14, he says, This is all the more urgent. For you know how late it is. Time is running out. Man, do you feel that? As you see the events unfold around the world, as you see the events unfold around here, do you feel like time is running out? Do you feel like you just wish you could wake people up? He says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night's almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes. And put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day we must not live deceitful lives for all to see don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual sin or any kind of other immoral or immoral behavior We should not cause arguments or trouble or be jealous. Instead, just put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to gratify the desire of your sinful nature. Remove your dark deeds. Life can spiral out of control because of the choices that we make. How do you overcome temptation? You change what you're focused on. The answer of that is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Throw off everything that hinders you. That sounds like something that's under my control, not God's. And the sin that so easily entangles you. And let us run with perseverance. Perseverance. The race that's marked out for us how do you do that verse 2 keeping our eyes fixed on jesus he's the author and perfecter the pioneer and perfecter if you will of faith he did not give up when he had to suffer shame and die on a cross he knew the joy that would be his later and now he has taken his seat at the right hand of god's throne and that same offer is ours Here's the seat at the table that I prepared for you. Don't give up your seat at the table. Focus on Jesus instead of your temptation. You see, God's message is more than just "don't sin." He wants to hear, or He wants us. He wants us to hear Him say, "Focus on Me." David, I want you to a praise so team join me back up on stage? jeremy can you go ahead and go to the next screen about zebras i know this may mess with your eyes some it was a great illustration priscilla shire used this illustration about zebras and in particular if you're able to focus a little bit on the front of the screen you'll see a smaller one a baby zebra if you will a foal a colt when a zebra gives birth One of the first things she does is take her offspring away from the herd so that it learns to know her. Apparently, zebras are somewhat like snowflakes. They all look the same to us, but each one of them has very distinctive, individual markings. And when she takes that baby zebra away to get to know and recognize her, that baby zebra learns how to recognize its mother even if it's surrounded by a whole herd of other zebras. And they all look the same to us, but that baby zebra, because it spent time with its mother, has learned how to recognize her. And it's a good thing, because for nourishment, for protection, to learn how to survive on its own, it needs to recognize the one who gave it life. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? God knows our survival depends on that kind of familiarity with him. That's why Jesus would say this in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And I'll lay down my life for the sheep. That's why he describes our relationship with him as a good shepherd. He calls us by name we know his voice we follow him we run away from an imposter let me encourage you don't give away your seat at the table know the one who gives you life if you want to know more about why god would forgive us why god would welcome us into his presence We'd love to spend more time talking with you in private than this kind of a setting will be. That's why an elder will be happy to meet you here on the side in a prayer room to talk with you about how we might help you in your walk with God. But for now, we need the encouragement to remember to claim the seat that's prepared for us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldorf Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at berriesvillechristian.org.